As we go to prayer this morning, I'd like to read these verses from Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay. He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps steps firm. And He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning acknowledging that you are the sovereign Lord. You're the God of hope and joy and peace, and yet the God who works his will throughout the universe. And Father, we would come to you this morning and bow before you, ask that your spirit will be our teacher, that you will instruct us from your word and draw us close to you. And Father, as the message is proclaimed uh, during this hour and as other classes are held, Throughout this property, we ask that your presence will be sensed by each individual, and you will accomplish your will and your purpose this day. For we pray in Christ's name, amen. If you will turn to the 17th chapter of 1 Samuel, I will read beginning at verse 41. Then the Philistine came out and approached David with the shield-bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog, that you come to me with sticks? The Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, <clears throat> You come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands, and I will strike you down and remove your head from you. And I will give the bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, that David quickly ran, ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand into his bag and took from it a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. And the stone sunk into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him but there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the valley to the gates of Ekron. And the slain Philistines lay along the way to Sha'arim, even to Gath and Ekron. And the sons of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines and plundered their camps. Then David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his weapons in his tent. 3,000 years ago, in the valley of Elah, in western Canaan, we have one of the most storied events of history occurring. This is the hill country. The hills here rise to 25, 26, 100 feet, or even more. And then they drop off into the Jordan Valley. They taper off over towards the coast here. 
coming kind of an open hill and valley region called the Shefalah along here, and then the plain here, which is relatively flat next to the coast. And here at Soka, right in that area right here, is where, this is the Elah Valley. The Elah is a brook that drains the highlands here, comes down to the coast, and right, right there is where the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other where David faced Goliath. And I explained to you before that if you have an opportunity to stand in that location, you, you'll be standing in kind of a miniature amphitheater because there are hills that rise on, on uh, virtually every side except really towards the west, not so much that way. But uh, you, you, can, you can visualize, visualize the uh, Philistine army on one side and the Israelite army on the other side and the tension of that day. The intimate historical details of this passage are unparalleled from any other source concerning the 11th century BC. I don't care what source you go to, archaeological, written, or any source, you will never find the detail anywhere that you find concerning this event that occurred this day. Why is that? Because that's where the focus of divine activity was that day, that year. There were larger armies in the world facing each other. Other battles would be fought in the 11th century BC. Um, there would be wars that were fought that uh, created greater economic and political ramifications than this battle. But nowhere else on this planet was there an event of such cosmic magnitude as this event that day. More people in the world, and I, you know, I, I can say this with confidence, more people in the world this day know of the face-off between David and Goliath than any other event from the 11th century before Christ. You tell me some other event from the 11th century before Christ. Yeah, right. Well, you could, if you thought about it for a minute. You could tell me about the crowning of David and, and uh, the latter part of the 11th century, of course, the reign of David and so forth. But the primary reason, of course, that we know this intimate detail is that there is no other ancient written record that even begins to compare with the Hebrew Scripture. None. Nowhere. I mean, we have a few little hazy ballads that come from earlier times, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is, of course, mostly just a fairy story. And, but other than that, there is almost nothing. There's, I mean, there is no detail like the Hebrew history. None in any history of any people. Even the Chinese who had such an intense desire to chronicle their, their, uh, chrono their uh, dynasties and their kings uh, do not have the detail that we have here in the Hebrew Scripture. I think that a secondary reason, though, that this event is so well known is the natural tendency of at least most people to favor the underdog, particularly when the underdog is such an underdog. <laughs> as David was that day as he faced the mighty Goliath. Particularly when the lines between good and evil are so clearly drawn as they were that day. David the shepherd, angered by Goliath's insolence towards Israel and by his impugning the divine name, although he was virtually ill-equipped or almost totally unequipped to, to function as a, a soldier, he boldly approached Goliath. It says he ran towards Goliath. He was anxious to see what God would do, believing that God would honor his faith. Because if you, re you remember how we read those, those words read this morning, David said, I, you have been delivered into my hands. There's no doubt about it. David knew the victory 
was his. Was that, uh, you know, what, was he presumptuous in that? No, he was acting in faith because he knew that his anger was divinely inspired anger. He was going to wipe out this uncircumcised Philistine just as he had killed the lion and the bear without the kinds of weapons that normally would be used for such an encounter. On his part, of course, Goliath, the great and mighty warrior, was insulted that Israel was going to send him this, this, this shepherd coming out with him sick. As we noted last week, the two armies transfixed, probably a hundred yards from on each side, away from David and Goliath, the two armies stood there watching to see what would to happen. And, and last week we talked about what probably went through the minds of the Philistines. What The soldiers could have had their spiritual eyes open. They would have seen just as Elisha's servant saw when Elisha prayed that the Lord would open his eyes. Let me read that passage to you because it's such a dramatic thing. From 2 Kings chapter 6. This is, of course, many, many years later when things have rather deteriorated in Israel. And Elisha is the great prophet of the hour, and Elisha has, has given over information to the king of Israel that the Lord's Spirit had revealed to him and the Syrians, who were the enemy of Israel, and Syria, the Syrians lived up in this area up in here, which is all blurry because I've got it focused down here, but you get the idea. The Syrians felt like Somebody in their camp is actually squealing and telling information because the Israelite king is able to counteract every move before they make it. And of course, it was a God revealing the truth to Elisha. And finally, the Syrian king realizes that Elisha is the enemy. And so he comes to the city of Dothan, which is in the northern part of Israel, and he surrounds the city. And in verse 15 of 2 Kings chapter 6, we read this. Now when the attendant of the man of God had risen early and gone out, behold, the army with horses and chariots was circling the city. And the servant said to Elisha, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he answered, Elisha answered and said, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those with them. Now, of course, to the servant, this was a ridiculous idea. Because the city of Dothan had a few little soldiers. What could they do? The army of Syria had completely surrounded the city. What are you talking about, Elisha? Are you, have you been sun-stricken? Verse 17. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of the horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. I think chariots of fire were in the Elah Valley that day. This was a spiritual confrontation. It wasn't just a big giant against a young man. It wasn't just David against a Goliath. It wasn't just Israel against the Philistines. It was the forces of hell arrayed against the forces of heaven. And I think if their spiritual eyes could have been opened, they would have seen the forces of hell arrayed on one side and Michael the archangel and the forces of heaven arrayed on the other side. Goliath, we noticed, was a tall man. We figured conservatively from the information given in the scripture that he was nine foot nine, which is tall enough. David, of course, was not right up in his face. David was back a ways, probably a hundred feet or more away as he was rushing up towards Goliath. When he slung his stone, 
Now, the armor bearer who was out in front of him carrying the full body shield, who was there to try to protect Goliath against anybody who happened to shoot a missile at him, was, of course, unable to defend against David because David was too far away and Goliath was too tall. So the angle was such that the armor could, bearer couldn't get his shield up there, even if he understood what David was doing. I think the armor bearer was sort of lighthearted about the whole thing because Goliath was. You know, Goliath's attitude was, this is a little fly coming out to annoy me here. So the armor bearer, I don't think, took it very seriously either. Goliath, I believe, probably knew what a sling was. I don't think he ever used a sling, but he probably knew what a sling was. But he was so confident in the fact that he was wearing armor, in the fact that his gods were with him, and he was so contemptuous of David, this, this, this shepherd coming out here with no armor and no weapons except a stick, that he showed no concern. And I think he took no evasive action. So he stood there like a dummy. And the rock just came flying. And David struck him in the only vulnerable spot there was. David could have hit him in a lot of places. And it might have smarted. But the only place that he could have hit him, where he could have done him any harm, was right between the cheekbones and the, and the edge of the helmet. Because that was the, you know, right around the eyes. That's the vulnerable place right in through here. The rest of it, you know, hit him in the jaw, would have hurt, but probably wouldn't have uh, taken him out, hit him in the arm, wherever else. But to hit him right smack, apparently it says in the forehead, where? Between the eyes, uh, in the temple, did he turn his head, you know, hit me here? I, well, I don't know what he did. Usually the helmets are built in such a way to kind of protect the temples because that is a, you know, a weaker part of the skull. So I think really what you have is just this little window of vulnerability right here. And uh, you remember we talked about the Benjamite slingers back in the days of the judges when they went out and fought against Israel and said that there were 7,000 Benjamite slingers, everyone who could, who could sling a stone at a hairbreadth. It's like shooting the eye out of a squirrel at 200 yards, you know, like the famous Southerners were supposed to be able to do. We're told in this passage that the stone sunk into his forehead. I think, of course, what that means is it hit the bone here and, sh and busted or shattered or cracked the bone and probably drove the bone pieces back into his brain. David picked up five stones before he went out there. Why did David pick up five stones? Mary? Goliath had four brothers. Goliath had four brothers. <laughs> Very good, Mary. <laughs> Well, I think there's all other possibilities, too. And one was, there's the armor bearer. Got to take care of him, too. Maybe somebody else, maybe one of his brothers, will come running out also. Possibly, David thought, though, I might not be able to take this guy out with one rock, with one stone. Might take more than one. Whatever the case may be, I believe that we can argue that God guided and empowered that single stone to do the job. David was skilled with a sling, but David gives full credit to God. God gave me the victory. God took out Goliath. I may have been the channel, but God took out Goliath. Because so many things could have happened. He could have missed. I, I don't know, maybe this isn't true for any of you, but I know that something I can do very regularly in an informal kind of atmosphere, you put somebody in a formal atmosphere with everybody's eyes are looking at you, and suddenly you can't hit the broadside of a barn, you know, kind of idea. The scripture is replete 
with examples of the truth that we so often remember from Zechariah. It is not by might nor by power, but by his spirit, says the Lord. I don't think it matters how talented we might be, how skilled we might be, how brilliant we might be, or how educated we might be. God's kingdom is only advanced by his power. Jesus gives us the victory. There is victory in no other strength or other ability. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. Paul conversely said, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And I think that's really the key and needs to always be the key to how to live the Christian life. If we try to do it in our own strength, we're going to miss the mark. We're only going to score hits as we move forward in the strength of the Holy Spirit. You remember the story of the idol of Dagon and the Philistines had captured the Ark of the Covenant and they took it in and, and put the Ark of the Covenant inside the temple of their god Dagon. And of course their god Dagon went thump on his face before the Ark and they put him back up and he went thump again and his arms and head broke off. So Goliath fell before the man in whom the Spirit of God was. Blam. The Spirit of Antichrist fell before the Spirit of Christ. Did David go, yeah, like they would do today? No. David didn't pump the air. He didn't celebrate his victory because it wasn't his victory. Of course, his victory wasn't complete yet either. He knew his job was not done. Now, the armor bearer, what was the armor bearer doing? The armor bearer was going, <laughs> Goliath, get up. And of course, when the armor bearer saw Goliath hit the ground, he was back to the Philistine lines because anybody who can cold cock his giant like that's going to be able to knock him silly. So there's no one between David and Goliath now. I think after David hit Goliath, he kept coming and the distance closed. <laughs> Not so rapidly that Goliath fell on David. <laughs> and <laughs> the distance closed and, and David came to Goliath to make sure that Goliath was dead. Now, there's a bit of ambiguity here simply because, you know, if you're dead, you're dead. Let me read verse 50 again. Thus David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he struck the Philistine and killed him. Now read verse 51. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew, out, drew it out of its sheath and killed him. Again. <laughs> no, it's just as, as, as Samuel, whoever is writing this, is saying, I mean, you know, the ultimate result is dead. The stone knocking him flat may not have killed him. So what did David do? David, the scripture says David did not have a sword in his hand. He had a stick. You know, I'm going to beat this guy until he's... No. He grabs Goliath's sword out of its sheath and he lops his head off. Again, what shall I say? I, I think this is a, another testimony to the fact we're not talking about a little kid here. You know, a little kid to have to take the sword and saw for a while, you know. Whop. David was a man. The point became moot, of course, when he lopped off the head of Goliath as to when he was dead or that he was dead. Up to that point, of course, the Philistines were stunned. They stood there aghast. Their giant is down. Get up, Goliath. Get up, Goliath. I'm sure they were saying, and at least they were hoping. They were uncertain as to Goliath's condition. Is he just knocked out? Is he going to be okay? But of course, once David held up the severed head, they were no, in no doubt as to what had happened to Goliath and that he wasn't going to get up again. 
Note the humiliation. Note the humiliation here. David, whom Goliath had deemed an unworthy opponent, cut off Goliath's head with Goliath's own sword. How could you humiliate anybody further? It's the ultimate humiliation. In Proverbs 16, 18 we read, Pride goeth before, goeth before destruction, and a haughty spirit before stumbling. <laughs> now the scripture is, is full of that kind of truth, and yet we live in a world of haughty people. And you and I are tended, tempted at times to be haughty too. Hey, am I cool or what, you know? No, you stink. How many times does the scripture say that God lifts up the humble and he abases the proud? And of course we see the proud in our country abasing themselves all the time. Oh, this glorious movie star who, who goes out and kills herself or himself on drugs or some other stupidity. Well, after watching what seemed like a ludicrous mismatch and then seeing their invincible giant slain, the Philistines were overwhelmed with fear and, and they were gone. I mean, they were gone. Whoa, we're out of here now. They, I, I think that, even though the scripture doesn't say specifically, I think because of the spirit of the Lord there, and as the enemy, uh, uh, the spiritual enemy was routed off the scene, the fear of God fell on those people and they were running flat out to get away from that situation. At the moment, David was a true type of Christ. In Colossians 2.15, we read these words. When Jesus had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through, through God. So God, through David, disarmed Goliath and disarmed the whole Philistine army. The Philistines threw their weapons away and ran. They were totally disarmed, not by David, but David was the channel God used. It was God who disarmed the enemy and made a public display of them. I mean, how mighty and how haughty can they be when they're running for their lives? Back towards Ekron and Gath. David was quick to give God credit for the victory. He knew he hadn't won it. He knew he was just a shepherd boy. He had a staff and he had a sling, but what else did he have against this mighty giant? When you read through the Old Testament, you find many accounts of similar to this. You find the great victory of Gideon over the armies of the Midianites and other victories such as that. What's the point of these stories? What is intended by these accounts? The intent is, of course, to build our faith in God, to build our faith in the words that Paul said in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who is against us? There may be Goliath on the scene, but Goliath is nothing in the face of Almighty God. If we are faithful and obedient, if we're trusting, we're living according to the Word of God, all our Goliaths are in the ultimate analysis paper Goliaths. Jesus told his disciples that the gates of hell shall not overpower the church. And yet, of course, we read of the, of the oppression of the church all over the world. We read of the oppression of the church, particularly in Muslim countries. And yet, 
Will the power of hell overpower the church? No. It, it may seem to be weak and feeble at the moment, but somehow it will break forth because Jesus gives his people the victory. We must live, I believe, in the faith that God's, by God's power, every Goliath will be destroyed. Every enemy force will be routed. The Goliaths in our lives will differ from one person to the next, and there may be multiple Goliaths. Sometimes our Goliaths are of our own doing because of our folly. We end up with a particular Goliath. But God will help us even then. God knows that we sometimes do stupid things. I, I was just listening this morning to uh, our, a little smi uh, smidgen of Erwin uh, Lutzer. And uh, he was saying that God throughout history has always provided for his people. And if his people needed something, he would say, pray and wait and you will have it. But today we don't need to pray and wait because we have Visa and MasterCard. So we can go out and get it whether we need it or not. And we don't need to trust in God because we can just go do it. I thought that was very, very appropriate, you know. For some of us, our dead is our Goliath. And it may be our own folly. But God will help us with that. And that Goliath can be slain also along with the many other Goli-I um, that might be around. Well, the Israelites were as stunned as the Philistines were. You know, David the shepherd has cut the head off of Goliath the giant. You know, I, I think they just stood there with their mouths agape. But finally it began to sink in. The champion was dead and the Philistines are fleeing. What are we doing? Adrenaline began to flow, and they shouted the victory, and zoo, they were after the Philistines. The victory wasn't complete, of course, until the enemy was routed. And so they set out in hot pursuit. The scripture tells us that they chased them towards Ekron and Gath. Here's uh, where I'm at. Here's, here's where the battle was fought, and here's Ekron. And I will tell you that one of the Gaths was here. You see a Gath here with a question mark. See another Gath up there. They've had a real hard time locating Gath, as you can imagine. But it seems most likely that the Gath we're talking about was either right here or right up in here, just maybe seven or eight miles to the west. Ekron is solidly located there, about 12 miles up that way. And so, you know, it's a bit of a chase. Uh, you're in the Shephelah, so you're getting down where it's fairly low. You don't have much downhill to run anymore. So they're running out onto the Philistine plains, so they're not helped by gravity. They're having to run flat out on the uh, relatively flat ground. The site of Sha'arim, which is mentioned there, is unknown. They've never been able to locate a site by that name, but it's believed that it was probably right up in here between Soko and Bashemish. Actually, as I mentioned last time, Azekah is right in here and isn't shown on this map. Azekah was actually a more, as a, was a bigger city than Soko at that time. But there was a road north and that uh, Sha'arim may have been along that route. But wherever it was, uh, they were chased in that direction. And because the Philistines, th this is so often the truth, and I've highlighted this before, that when an army flees, they often toss their weapons away because it's hard to run with all this weaponry hanging on you, you know. 
you go to the days when guns were in existence, you know, in modern days when guns, especially muskets, you're running with a little musket. Now muskets, you remember, were as tall as a man was and they weighed about 10 pounds and you're carrying this big old heavy thing and you only get a shot off once in a while and you have to stop and reload the crazy thing. You can't reload it while you're running and so throw the thing away. Well, spears and swords and just a bunch of metal hanging on you, what do you need that for if you're running flat out down the, top, you know, down the landscape? So they chuck it all. Which means, of course, they have no defense if they ever were brought to bay and tried to turn and face the enemy. So they just kept running. And uh, I've mentioned this to you before. You may have read the article in U.S. News where John Keegan, who's probably one of the most famous uh, writers on warfare, uh, historians on warfare, says that almost throughout history, you'll find that the greatest number killed on battlefields have wounds in their back because they were killed running. They were killed fleeing from the battlefield all the way from the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans to modern days. Uh, spear wounds, arrow wounds, bullet wounds in the back are the most common cause of death for the bulk of fighters on a battlefield because they ran, they fled, they broke, and as a result, they were killed. And so it was for the Philistines as they ran along the roads to Gath and Ekron. Now Josephus, the first century uh, Jewish historian, uh, in his antiquities, says that the number of Philistines killed that day was 30,000. Scripture doesn't say, but uh, that apparently was the tradition that carried down through time, 30,000 Philistines. And that's very probable. It's easily within ballpark of what the army would have been like in those days. And of course, some of the, uh, some of the Philistines made it. They, they, the gates were open, you know. Yeah, you know, the first guy gets there, open the gates! And they, well, they open the gates and the Philistines run in and they slam the gates in front of the Israelites of the gates of Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that a few of them certainly escaped and were within the sanctuary of those two cities. We're told that when the Israelites had completed the <laughs> slaughter, they returned to the battlefield and they plundered the Philistine camp. I highlighted this before, but let me just highlight it again. Troops in much of history, especially the commanders of the troops, carried a lot of baggage with them. We were just looking at a, a, a video last night on, some of you probably have seen it, on the American Revolution called Liberty. And it talks about the uh, attack of gentleman Johnny Burgoyne who came down from Canada to try to sever New England from New York. And that his baggage train for just Burgoyne was a mile long for just the general. Uniform, champagne, all this stuff he had to go along with him. And it mentioned that the British Army of 8,000 had 2,000 women and children attached to it because some of the men and many of the officers had their wives and kids with them. Doesn't seem like a real act of war. <laughs> but when Alexander the Great invaded the Persian Empire back in the fourth century before Christ, his, his army of maybe 40 or 50,000 men was accompanied by 80,000 camp followers. <laughs> women and, and slave buyers and all, all kinds of other people. And so the Philistine army certainly had a lot of extra personnel along and therefore all, this, all these goodies were there in the, in the Philistine camp because they fled, they left everything. They left their food behind, they left their money behind, they left their extra clothes behind, they left their tents behind. Everything was left behind. They didn't care. And, and they fled, so the Israelites plundered the camp. And that was one of the fruits of victory in those days. Pay was pretty low in armies of those days. Probably is still today, but, but in our days, we're not usually allowed to plunder. But in those days, that was 
that was how you rewarded your, your men. You allowed them to plunder the enemy camp. What was David's plunder? Well, one thing was the head of Goliath. He kept dragging that around with him. And uh, as well as his weapons and his armor. So David had Goliath's armor and Goliath's weapons. Now we know that, da that Goliath had at least three weapons because David says, you've come to me with spear, sword, and javelin. So he had at least that. And almost always, they always carried a dagger with them because that was the, you know, the coup de grace weapon that was used as well as to you know, cut their meat and pick their teeth and everything else. The statement in verse 54 where it says that David took Goliath's head to Jerusalem, we need to look at that for a minute. What? Why is he taking Goliath's head to Jerusalem? Look at this map. The red line encompasses Saul's kingdom. What Saul actually ruled was inside the red line here. So he ruled uh, the Transjordanian area out to the borders of Ammon and to the various Aramaic tribes up here and the Moabites down here. The Amalekites and uh, others were down to the south. The Philistines occupied the plain here. And the Phoenicians lived up in here. So from Dan in the north to Beersheba in the south, this was Saul's kingdom. But notice these two little red circles inside here. Bashan was a Philistine enclave in the middle of Israel. And Jerusalem was a Jebusite enclave inside of Israel. It had never fallen into Israeli hands. And neither had Bethshan at that particular point in time. So, let me read you some words from the commentator Ronald Youngblood. He says, Humiliating one's enemies by cutting off the heads of their vanquished heroes was commonly practiced in the ancient Near East. Then quoting another commentator, he writes, David probably... Putting the, was, was probably putting the Jebusites on notice that just as the Philistine had fallen victim to David, Jerusalem's demise was only a matter of time. In other words, he took the head of Goliath of the city of Jerusalem and probably flung it over the wall and said to you guys in there, this is what's going to happen to you because you're next. Now, why, why would David say that? I mean, the city of Jebus uh, had been in Jebusite hands ever since the Israelites first occupied the land. Oh, they had captured some of the outer areas early on, but they never captured the citadel, and, and so the Jebusites were still here, like a, like a wound festering inside of Israel. But, but David lived in Bethlehem, and Bethlehem is right here. So David had to walk past Jerusalem every time he went anywhere to the north, and he was always reminded, ah, oh, this is still not in our hands. And you notice that David is not the kind of guy who takes that easily. He was insulted because Goliath was impugning his God and, and was speaking down to the armies of the living God. And, and to him, the Jebusites were the same. Here they were. They were in the land that was supposed to belong to Israel. The city was supposed to be an Israelite city. And yet there it still stood, so near to his hometown. And so as he was insulted by Goliath, he was insulted by the existence of this pagan city inside of the land of God's people. We do read, of course, in this passage that he may have left Goliath's head at Jerusalem. You know, there's no point in keeping Goliath's head too long. Uh, it's going to get in pretty bad shape after a while. And so you might as well um, toss it to somebody else. But he did take Goliath's weapons with him. And it says he put him in his own tent, which means, I think, means he took him home to Bethlehem. 
word tent is used in the Old Testament to not only mean tent, but home wherever you were dwelling. And so he took Goliath's sword and spear and javelin and his armor to his own house. Well, eventually, of course, they'll end up in, in, in the possession of the priests. But at this time, he took them to his own home in Bethlehem. Let's read the last few verses of this chapter because they're kind of interesting here. Now, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his army, Abner, whose son is this young man? Duh. Abner said, by your life, O king, I do not know. Now, here's the king and the commander of the army. And they're pleading ignorance to who this guy is out here. I mean, David had just been there, and, and, and Saul had said, okay, you can go. He tried to put armor on the guy. And the king said, you inquire whose son the youth is. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the Philistine's head in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I'm the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. I, I think this passage helps to understand how confused Saul was or at least how out of contact he was because of the periodic attacks of the evil spirit that came upon him and the terrible depression he went into. He, he just seems to forget everything. It's like his, even his short-term memory is, uh, is gone. Now, what, what is the time difference between chapter 16 and chapter 17? We don't know. It's indeterminate. Scripture makes no statement to indicate whether between chapter 16, where David was soothing Saul with his music and now the war and the David and Goliath scene occurs. Were, were we talking about a few weeks, a few months, or a few years? We don't know. It's possible that it was a few years. It's possible because we remember in chapter 16, David would soothe Saul for a while, and then when Saul got better, David would go home. And he would come back when Saul was having his trouble again and, and play music for him a while, and then he'd go home. So it could be that although we're told that Saul thought so highly of him, he made him an honorary bodyguard or armor bearer, the... the fits that he had, the times that David were gone caused him to really lose contact to who this kid really was. And it's possible that, you know, I mean, we're talking about somebody who is in his late teens to early 20s, that he physically was changing enough that uh, maybe he started growing a beard, who knows. Of course, not according to Michelangelo. Now, Michelangelo does not have a beard on him. But anyway, it, it could be that, that Saul legitimately couldn't, couldn't remember who this, who this young man was and who was his father was. Of course, he had never known him to be a warrior anyway. He'd always just been a musician, playing his little lyre, you know, uh, for the king. Now, who's Abner? Well, back in the 14th chapter, we were told who Abner was. He is Saul's cousin. And we're told that he was the commander of his army. But prior to this time, we have no reference of him actually being the commander of the army. You might say, now, wait a minute. If Abner was the commander of the army, why wasn't Abner out there fighting Goliath? What was Abner doing, you know? Uh, not out, not doing his duty. He was the commander of the army. Well, this is the first reference to him actually serving with Saul. So Abner was there in the Elah Valley. Now, we're going to look further on down time, and Abner was not a cowardly man. Abner was a, a great soldier, a warrior. But as I said before, God prepared this situation specifically for David. And he didn't allow Saul or Abner and any, or anybody else to go out there and take on the challenge, even if it had been virtually an act of suicide. At Saul's request, Abner brought David to Saul's tent with Goliath's head in hand, probably holding him by the hair, you know, 
and reintroduced him to Saul. Now, how many times has David been introduced to Saul? Several. It could be that Saul was mentally blocking him out because he had been told by Samuel, your son will not follow you on the throne. You're going to lose your throne and I'm going to pick a man. And he was afraid. And we're going to see that is very true as we get into the 18th chapter. Saul becomes paranoid about David and does some really strange things, even attempting to kill David personally. Well, next week we'll, we'll look at the 18th chapter. It starts out with a very interesting scenario of Jonathan and David becoming very close friends.